From pitch side to print to the press box above Providence Park. It's Jamie Goldberg from the Oregonian and Richard Farley from the Portland Timbers and Thorns. This is Soccer Made in Portland. On the scene, all the time. Welcome, everyone, to Soccer Made in Portland. Welcome back. Welcome back. Yeah, it feels like I haven't been here in years. It was a big week. It was (laughs) was a big week that I, unfortunately, was at a family wedding for. So sometimes you have to prioritize, you know, the personal life. But uh, it's good to be back. It's good to be at the final, even though it's not the result, the NWSL final, that I think fans were hoping for. Um, I think both of us sort of just, I don't know, such a crazy week. I think we're both started dealing with colds now because we've yeah. been probably Did running not. around for the last few days. I was telling you this at Timbers practice today. Amid all my friends being in town, I forgot to eat meals and just left myself susceptible to every germ in the world <laughs> coming in. But I do want to stick up for you a little bit because you did have a family engagement this weekend that rightfully you Not went this to. this weekend. The weekend before. weekend before. here for the this, NWSL final. Yeah, so for the semifinal. And in fairness to you, I happen to know that you reached out to the NWSL very early in the season and said, hey, can you tell me who the semifinalists are going to be? And they said no. <laughs> so at least you went through your due diligence and at least asked them to help you out a little bit. They just wouldn't help you out. And yeah. I, think, I think that's unfair to you. I know. I think it's unfair to your readers. And ultimately it was unfair to us last weekend when you weren't here. Yeah, I know. I know it's a big loss every time I'm not around you, Richard. I know you miss me all the time. You, is that a joke? That's actually, that hurts a little bit. Like when you were talking about you maybe not being here, I was like, oh, okay. But you are here now. You I were here, here this weekend. Yes. And uh, none of us were in Columbus this weekend. Uh, well, for I mean. The, for the first half, maybe none of us were in Columbus. But I mean, Columbus was here. Oh, Columbus. Thank <laughs> You're you. You're already thinking Minnesota. We got to oh go, go all the way back. We got to talk about something positive. Before we talk about Minnesota, it's like someone more positive before right, we talk about Minnesota. Right. I think it's understandable that the Minnesota game is on our mind right now. Absolutely. But like you said, let's jump back to Wednesday first. Let's talk about the Timbers 3 2 victory over Columbus here at Providence Park. A victory that at the time was giving us some mixed feelings because although the Timbers maybe played their worst 15 minutes of the year to start that game, they actually looked pretty good for the next hour or so. I think 3 2 flattered Columbus a little bit because they got a stoppage time goal yep. that made it closer. Uh, what was your what were your overall feelings of the game? Yeah, I, I think overall it was um, you know, you know, save that fifteen minutes. It was an overall good performance at home from the Timbers. I, I think, you know, Columbus didn't play their best lineup and that should be acknowledged. The Timbers did kind of go in with the, the obviously were prioritizing that game, go, going in with their top lineup. Um but yeah, it, it was a good result at home, and I, I think it was a good response. I think that was probably an important part coming out of the game. It was a good response following you know, the kind of face plant on the road in Houston. Yeah, and I, anybody that was here probably was really scared over the opening moments of that match, particularly given how the first goal happened where the team, while they were waiting for a whistle after David Guzman went to ground, seemed to turn off a little bit. And then even in the 10 minutes after that, they didn't seem to fully respond. It took David Guzman's goal for the team to really wake up. And I was really, really perplexed by the way the team opened that game because I think a lot of us have seen this year, unfortunately, many times where the team has had bad performances on the road, have had a chance to respond, and they have responded. And that absolutely did not happen over the first 15 <laughs> or 20 minutes. Do you? How much do you think we should dwell on those 15 or 20 minutes? My inclination is based on what happened over the next hour, that that 15 or 20 minutes might be aberrational, but 
do you feel any differently? I, I don't feel like, yeah, given what happened for the rest of the game, I don't want to dwell too much on the first 15 minutes. I, I do think as the Timbers face better teams, and they will in, in this next month, um, better teams at full strength, uh, as I said, given Columbus the lineup they rolled out for that game. They're going to have to be better for full stretches of the game, and they might not be able to recover if a bad 15 minutes leads to them conceding a goal. This was their first comeback victory of the season, and so it's not something they've been able to do a lot this year, and they definitely don't want to be putting themselves in that position, especially with the next games, four games being really important. But yeah, overall, it was a good performance, and I don't think we should dwell too much on the first 15 minutes. I think this ties back into something that was part of the great uh, Diron Espria debates of 2018. Uh, the idea that, okay, if you have to, to bring somebody off the bench to score a goal, do you really want Diron Espria to do it? And the answer to that is both no, and there weren't really that many times that they needed him to. I mean, luckily so far this year, the Timbers yeah. have not been behind that much, which means they haven't had to come from behind as much. But I think it's also a reminder that maybe these things will even out a little bit too. Maybe the Timbers have been on the right side of these coin flips in some situations before. I don't really want to describe it as coin flips, but I think we might want to acknowledge that over the course of the year, teams tend to be put in situations at relatively even amount of times or proportional to how good they are. And the Timbers maybe are going to have to deal with the come from behind thing a little bit more. Yeah. Uh, I mean, coming later in the season, I feel like that's the kind of thing that happens. You have to, good teams are going to have to deal with different circumstances and that might be coming from behind more. I think one of the things coming out of the game though, that I think you saw a lot of questions from fans about, you saw a pretty heated debate between our uh, former co-host Chris Reifer and Merritt Paulson on Twitter about was Giovanni Savaresti to not only Giovanni Savaresti's decision to not only start his best players, but leave uh, players like Diego Valeri, Diego Chara, Sebastian Blanco in the game for the full 90 minutes. Valeri came off in stoppage time. Um, despite maybe the game seeming out pretty much uh, put to bed uh, well earlier than that. What did you think of that decision? I, Whenever these things happen, I tend to think that the coaching staff knows more than us and we have to stop and really think about that. I think what was illustrated as far as the more it's no the best part is that Valeri wasn't going to start in Minnesota. Chara wasn't going to start in Minnesota. Maviala wasn't going to play in Minnesota. So if you have those things decided beforehand, it makes it easier to make those decisions on Wednesday. I'm pretty sure they had had the week planned out. Uh, it's just one of those sticky things. We did see the debate between Chris Reifer and Merritt Paulson and it, I hate saying stuff like this because it's on people like me, especially and you to a lesser extent, but I'm part of the club here, to kind of explain things when people from the outside don't see what's going on. And there is a lot of information that goes into when players play, how long they should play, a lot of data that they collect during the week, during games, that we don't get to see that no other teams share either. But that goes into the decisions. So to speculate from the outside whether 20 or 30 minutes would have mattered, I don't think there's an answer to that. And unfortunately, I think we kind of have to trust the coaching staff on that. I think that you're right that they probably had a sense of who they were going to start in Minnesota. And they, given that the players I mentioned had already started back in Houston and it was going to be the third game in eight days, it probably wouldn't matter too much whether or not they got 20, 30 minutes rest in terms of whether they started. I think you're right. Savaresi probably had his lineup pretty set uh, for Minnesota. At the same time, I, I think I, I think there is a reason to question why, especially late in the season, when you know that there's a lot of tired legs and you can have an opportunity to get a player like Larry off who has looked 
fatigued at points this season. If you have the opportunity to get Blanco off, obviously they were planning to start him in uh, Minnesota as well. Have the opportunity to get him off and get a little bit more rest heading into a game he's going to start, his third game in eight days. Why they decided not to do that. And mm-hmm. um, I, I think that's something, yeah, we're never going to fully have all the data that the coaching staff has, but I thought it was a totally fair question coming out of the game. And we clearly saw going to Minnesota, maybe it, those 20, 30 minutes wouldn't have made a difference, but we clearly saw that the rotations uh, had to happen mm-hmm. and they clearly impacted that game. Yeah, I completely agree with how you put it. There are questions to be asked and I think they're fully fair questions to ask. Why did you make this sub? Why didn't you make this sub? Those are questions that get asked all around the world beyond just fitness concerns. I think what disturbed me about the exchange we saw on Twitter was the assumption that 20 or 30 minutes would have mattered. And we don't know that. Maybe they would have mattered for some players or not. And I think the other thing is that when Merritt jumps online, I think everybody knows him and Chris in particular have been going at each other like this all year. But he tends to jump online to try to share more information. Maybe he can do that better. Yeah, uh, yeah. I think if you're going to talk about the exchange, you definitely have to acknowledge that um, you know name calling is probably not the best way to get things across. Yeah, I and this is me trying to not take an active part in that exchange and forgetting <laughs> what the names were. But when Meredith is jumping online, he is he's trying to share information with people. He's trying to share, you know, twenty or thirty minutes for these players. From the knowledge that I have, is not does not matter now. That's probably something that people like you and me should follow up to get Giovanni Savarese's words out of it. I mean, when he was asked about it after the game, Savarese essentially said that they weren't focused at that moment on Minnesota. I mean, that was the essentially the response he gave the reporter mm-hmm. who asked that question. Obviously, we know that I wasn't at that game. I didn't have a chance to ask uh, Gio any questions related to that. But um, there wasn't like a specific thing, a response where he gave, where he said 20, 30 minutes wouldn't have mattered because of X, Y, Z. Yeah. Um, it was more broad and just saying that they were focused on Columbus and not at that moment thinking about Minnesota. Yeah, I think it's very interesting. We've talked about this so much on this show since I've come on and being a part of the club that there is this opportunity for us to get more information out there about why these decisions are made. Sometimes that information is looked at with some skepticism. And like we're talking about here, sometimes the way the information is delivered engenders that skepticism. But from the position I've sat in, I've learned so much about why these decisions are made with people's playing time. And it goes so far beyond things like, well, that person shouldn't be able to play three times in a week because Diego Valeri, we have seen him do those stretches and he'd probably be the one person on this team you would point to first is like, no, he can't do it. And it turns out that based on all the data that they have, all the testing they've done with him, he's actually in a better place to do that than a lot of people. And Sebastian Blanco, too, we think of him as having a lot of miles on him this year, and he he has a very active style of play, but he's somebody that keeps getting thrown out there. So I think you and I, we should probably dig into this a little bit more because coming from that exchange on Twitter, I don't think anybody learned anything from it, to be honest with you. I think we should try to learn why Merritt answered that way. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, regardless of whether 20, 30 minutes would have made a difference for those players. It, we, we know what happened in Minnesota. Yes. And it obviously was not what the Timbers wanted, even if, even if maybe they were prioritizing the Columbus wow. game over the what Minnesota game. What a first game. half. Yeah. So uh, the score line is a little bit flattering to the Timbers. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, they did have the second half to get the score line, but <laughs> Minnesota wins 3-2. to two. Um, Yeah. It was mm-hmm. uh, Timbers played some sort of soccer in the first half. When I watched that game the first time, I thought the first half was terrible. 
I watched it the second time, and there were, I thought like the first six or eight minutes were good, and then there was a good spell after the first goal, but just the amount of individual mistakes yeah. we saw in that game was the first time this year, really, because I think we've seen games before where it seemed like the collective unit failed, but like a center back partnership not getting their offside trap right. That's just an execution thing. A ball coming out of the back to a midfielder who just scuffs it right to an attacking player. That's an execution thing. People missing one on people losing one on one battles against attackers on the flanks. That's just an execution thing. And I do actually buy into Giovanni Savarese saying a little bit that the turf took some time to get used to, but you've got to make different decisions in those moments if you know that you're not accustomed to the turf. It's, if that means hoofing the ball long and taking some more time to get used to it, fine. But you can't put yourself in a situation to let turf be a deciding factor. I'm not saying it was, but boy, what a perplexing first 45 minutes. Yeah, I mean, I, I think <laughs> Sabresi clearly agreed with that assessment given um, <laughs> given the expletive the, he the used. The legend of Vitas continues. Yeah, on live TV at halftime. Uh, yeah, it, it, it was... I mean, even given the rotations, I mean, we talked about the Timbers depth this year, and I think earlier in the season we talked positively, uh, especially yeah. as they were going on the 15-game on Bean Street. We talked really positively about their depth and how they are switching lineups, you know, making a few tweaks here and there, game in, game out, and these players are stepping up. Um, there certainly were some regular starters in that lineup, so I don't want to put it all on while well, the depth pieces just uh, couldn't couldn't perform. But... I think there are a lot more questions about the Timbers' depth recently, especially when the road form and and some of these stretches where they've had to rotate the lineup has just been so poor. I can agree with that more. The Jekyll and Hyde thing that is going on with this team right now between Providence Park and when they're on the road is inexplicable in the face of the consistency we saw at the beginning of the year. Ever since between that New York Red Bulls debacle and the end of the unbeaten streak, there really wasn't that much of a difference in road and home form between these two, the team. I said the, almost said these two teams. It feels like two teams at this point. What we're seeing in the Houston game, what we're seeing in the Minnesota game, it is so different that I can't believe like the tactics are so different between these games. I think there's something mentality-wise. Maybe the team has gotten a little bit overconfident, a little bit too into the the unbeaten streak that it had a little bit too into what it can do at home and is not taking the steps necessary to move that on the road because on the road against decent teams, but decent teams they should be performing much better against. They just look bad. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, bringing in, I, I think one other point with sort of how some of these road games have played out, they have been in situations where the Timbers have been dealing with a lot of compacted schedules. So Danny asked us, why have three games weeks been so hard for Savaresi to properly manage? He, he thinks that, look, when you take these three-game stretches aside, where the Timbers would be in the standings, it could potentially be much higher. But do we think it's a, how it comes down to the compacted schedule, and do, we, do you think that it comes down to a poor management um, of maybe these three-game and eight-day stretches that Timbers have dealt with in the last two months? I don't know. I haven't thought about it so much. I mean, what's your gut instinct like? I mean, my first reaction is we've seen teams come to Providence Park in the middle of their three-and-eight stretches and look bad, too. So it seems like... On a certain level, it is a league-wide thing, but I don't know. It seems like there's a good reason to ask this question, too. Yeah, I, I think it's tough for any team in, in these compacted schedules, and the Timbers have dealt with three of them in, uh, since uh, the beginning of uh, uh, August, yeah. I believe. Um, so the Timbers have clearly had some difficult schedules in the in the last two months, and it's coincided 
with some really, really poor performances. And even after that first stretch where the Timbers went uh, lost three in a row uh, in a compacted schedule, Savaresi said he had need to make changes and he needed to adjust. And the second stretch was maybe a little bit better. And then this third stretch... You can't be f- feeling all that positive with the way the Timbers performed at Minnesota and Houston. Uh, so I think, yeah, there's some of it's fatigue. Some of it has to come down to, you know, may, may, this is a new league for Savaresi, and he's adjusting to how to manage these th- three-game and eight-day stretches, clearly. Um, he, he's made a, tried to make adjustments like that. I, I think that's part of it. I think it can't be used as an excuse because, um, you know, the Houston was the first game of a three-game stretch. There's no reason to have a terrible outing there. And so it's not always like it's the third game in these stretches. Um, And teams in MLS have to manage these better. I mean, it's just an expectation for this league, especially late in the year. They're going to deal with stretches where they're playing three games in a week. And the Timbers, especially when they've had to go on the road in these stretches, uh, as it's turned out, but when they've been on the road recently, have not been able to handle them. I don't think there's even a need for excuses. I mean, the Timbers are in fourth yeah. place. They're six places, six points, I believe, into the playoff spot. I mean, I think most of us would expect them to make the playoffs, although the problem is that they're hitting this lull at the point that they need to get these final wins under their belt and confirm that spot. So I think you, you can sit here and say this is just something that most teams have to go through during years when they during seasons when they have these congestion stretches, and the Timbers just happen to have theirs at this point in the season. At the same time... I mean, sports is really at its core about being handed challenges and dealing with them. And the Timbers clearly of the, over last month have not done as well as they would have liked to dealing with their challenges. And I, I think that you, like you said, the, at this point, it's very likely that Timbers are going to be in playoffs in terms of where they are in points and where in their standings, they are still in a good spot, even though I, I think we're not feeling super optimistic after the last week or, or, you know, longer right. um, at the same time, if they kind of falter this month and, and sort of sneak into playoffs, it's quite possible that they'll be going on the road to Vancouver on the last day of the season <laughs> and then immediately turning around and going on the road somewhere else. So yeah. this team's going to have to figure out uh, one way or another if they hope to have their playoff run last more than you know a day or two, mm-hmm. um, how to deal with a compacted schedule, especially if they're going on the road potentially. Yeah, I have a lot of doubts about this team right now. I think anybody should. I think they should have doubts about them. But if some of our doubts are born from these stretches of congested schedule, well, the team has four games in five weeks to close the season. If some of the doubts are born from the road form, well, they only have two road games left, and none of them are beyond the mountain time zone. So even if they lose those two games and win at home, they're they're likely going to get a home game in the play-in round uh, at that point. Who knows? Maybe not. But I think the Timbers are in a good place, and I think we can start really talking about more of the underlying form than anything else. And um, I, even then, based on the first 20 minutes against Columbus, there's a lot to talk about there. And before we preview uh, Saturday's game at Dallas, I did want to ask, a, on a positive side, I mean, the Timbers do respond in Minnesota in the second half. It, it was a completely Ooh. different team in the second half. How much zero or little optimism do we take zero. Out okay uh, the, Minnesota to me is a below average team that was handed a three goal yeah. lead <laughs> I I'm not reading anything into that second half I would have been more disappointing if they didn't make it a game or if they didn't fight back I around here there have been around here being Providence Park where we are today around here there have been a lot of people going yeah but the second half it's like what I mean, what we we supposed to expect in the second half for it to just get worse? No, like if the Timbers are half the team they want to be, they need to go out there and prove that first half was a fluke, and they didn't fight all the way back. And if they did, we would be saying something else. And 
I think them fighting back means we don't have to get all apocalyptic about Saturday. But I'm not reading anything into the second half. I'm, I'm looking at the first half. I've broken down that first half four times at this point. I haven't even looked at that second half. <laughs> yeah, I think that summed it up pretty well because I don't think either of us right now are feeling all that optimistic given given the performance in Minnesota. Mm-hmm. Which only makes this game coming yeah. on Saturday against FC Dallas all the more important. FC Dallas visiting Providence Park on Saturday at 7.30. The teams have faced each other once before the season. A very important game, third game of the season. The Timbers were 0-2 going into that one. They got a very important draw that kind of set their season back in the right direction. Uh, so what are we thinking about Saturday, Jamie? How optimistic are you? Particularly because FC Dallas had a very good road win this weekend in Cascadia, yeah. in Cascadia over the Vancouver Whitecaps, the, the now coachless yeah, Vancouver we, Whitecaps. We, I guess we have a lot of questions about where the Vancouver Whitecaps season is going as well right now. But yeah, I mean, FC Dallas is currently in first place. The Timbers are in fourth place. The the standings are very close, um, so that's not necessarily a significant, too significant of a difference. But I think what I'm really interested in going into this game is, is to sort of see how the Timbers do against a stronger opponent. Because the Timbers in the last 10 games have three wins. Um, they've all been at home, but they've Colorado, incredibly very, very weak team. Mm-hmm. And then Columbus and Toronto. I mean, Toronto was missing Giovinco, who who was sort of carrying that team at that point heading into that game, and Columbus rotated their lineup. So I want to see how the Timbers are going to step up at home uh, against a team that is, should be at full strength and is currently first in the Western Conference. And I think they have a lot to prove in this game. I think it's also a team that is decidedly different in nature than the one that the Timbers faced in, I guess it was, was it still March back then or was March or April? But the third game of the season, uh, they made a big trade in the middle of the year, trading Kellen Acosta for Dominic Baji, who was tended to start it up, start up front with Maxi Arruti, kind of freeing up Maxi Arruti to do what he does best, run around and create trouble and even drop deeper and play beneath Dominic Baji. It's a, it's a different look now for Dallas. I think it's a look that in my mind, is a little bit more solid, maybe slightly less dynamic. They sometimes fall into playing more of a 4-4-2, even though they don't call it a 4-4-2. I'm very, very intrigued by that. And like you, I think it's going to be a a very good test depending on uh, which FC Dallas players actually play on Saturday. I think they'll be a full team, but... I don't know who, who I don't know who gets injured the next two days. <laughs> Knock on wood. Never talk about injuries. Obviously, the Timbers will be without Sebastian Blanco, uh, who picked up a yellow card, was not happy about that in the Minnesota <laughs> game, and will be suspended for yellow card accumulation. So they'll have to overcome that. But yeah, I, it's been a rough. I, I think basically looking at the last ten games, it's been really rough for the Timbers. And so, if they're going to show that they can rebound from Minnesota, if they are going going to show that he can sort of get back on track and not just be in a position where they're going to limp into playoffs and and have you know be eliminated immediately in the knockout round this is the kind of game to show they're at home they're playing a good team but that they can step up and play their best soccer i think blanco and chara are these this team's two most important players uh so i'm going to be very curious as to how savarese replaced blanco because where is he and formation-wise, kind of plays at the same level, level as Diego Valeri. He is doing a lot of the connecting work. And I think we just see, too, so many of the good chances that the Timbers have created over the last two or three weeks have had Sebastian Blanco at their core. So it, it'll be a big challenge for the team to find that energy that he provides and something that they need to figure out how to do because you can't be just de- that dependent on one player to be your engine. So before we get to listener questions, I just wanted to ask, you know, heading into the final four games of the season, I mean, what do we think in terms of point total that the Timbers need? How many points do they need to, to make sure they're in playoffs? And how many do they need to potentially, you know, get out of the chance of their going on the road for that knocker game or even 
uh, avoid the knockout run altogether. Oh, I'm stretching my neck right now. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, have you thought about this at all, or should I just like talk it out on on air here? <laughs> you can talk it out. I mean, I think I've thought about it a little bit. But. So, I think this number is a lot lower than people might think, mostly because a lot of the teams behind the Timbers yeah. aren't very convincing. So, the Timbers. As far as playoff contenders are concerned, in the seven and eight spots, Galaxy, Vancouver, two teams that have replaced their coaches in the last two weeks. Real Salt Lake, in a very similar situation to the Timbers, where they're a decent team that seems to be super inconsistent. Uh, the Timbers' inconsistency is defensively, where sometimes they look like the best defense in the league, sometimes they weren't, they don't. RSL seems like a team that can put four or six goals on but, you at a time. Yeah, and but the Timbers play RSL twice, so. Right. Whatever happens to the Timbers directly impacts what happens to RSL. Right. And then we have the Sounders, who were so good for so long, but now they've lost two in a row. I actually think the Timbers probably only need four points from these last four games uh, to secure a playoff spot. To secure a uh, home game in the next round, six or seven, I would think. But like you say, if if three of those points, if six of those points come against RSL, then they're in incredible shape. You know, I think in just a secure playoff spot, they might might need less. I think maybe even two points is all they really need. I mean, right. you, you look at the playoff line right now, the Galaxy only have four more games. They're at 41 points, so they have to catch up with six points yeah. in the Timbers. And Vancouver will play the Timbers on the final day of the season, so that gives them that sort of boost if they get oh, the three points there. No, you're totally right. Yeah. In fact... It's entirely conceivable that... The t- that They don't get another point and they still make playoffs. Yeah, because if you look at the point-per-game rates for the Galaxy and the Whitecaps and you project that over their last game, they're only slightly above the Timbers at that point if you prorate their current rates. So, but yeah. I agree with you more on, on you know Salt Lake and, and Seattle. Those teams are right behind the Timbers and, and the Timbers can't... I mean, if the Timbers you know don't pick up any points in the next four games, they are absolutely... if they're in playoffs at that point. They're absolutely going to be one of the fifth or sixth spots, uh, especially since they play Salt Lake. I think the fact that they play Salt Lake twice kind of puts them in a position where they really do need points out of that game to not drop into the fifth or sixth spot. And I expect Seattle, um, you know, to, they still have five games left to, to move up the standing. So I, 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 at this point, I think they're pretty secure overall about making the playoff spot. Yeah. Uh, making Ooh, the that's, that's weird to say. Yeah. But sure, I completely is. agree with you. It's fairly cons- secure on that. And I think if they can take four points against RSL, that would basically guarantee that they would finish above RSL in the standings. And yeah, I would really like their chances to finish above Seattle at that point, too. So, yeah, that, that's a really good point to bring up about the fact that they face RSL. Um, should we get to some listener questions? Yes. Let's start with um, Nick. Nick, are the Timbers playing poorly or have their veterans just lost a step as compared to last year? Did Porter leave at the right time? Let's answer the first question first. Uh, Do we think that they are playing poorly or have the veterans lost a step or can you even separate these two things? Yeah, it's hard to separate them because I I think there's some of both. I I don't think Valeri is anywhere where he was last year. Um, And I think you've seen that. I I mean, you look at Chara, I I think he might be having one of the best seasons of his career. So there's different um, veterans you want to look at. Blanco, too, has also been having... I think improved yeah. on his season last year. So I don't think it's a across the board looking at the veterans. I think when Ridgewell's been in there overall, at least at home. He's been kind of back and forth, but um, then you can say Guzman hasn't been as good as last year. Yeah. So it's kind of like you so can split these eggs into two baskets. It's sort of back and forth on the veterans for me. Um, but yeah, I think it's it, it. there's an aspect of some of the veterans maybe having lost a step and the Timbers are just, you know, right now they are just playing poorly. Yeah, I think 
I think you summed it up uh, right. I think we were just kind of waiting for the Timbers to snap out of this funk because the more we watch this team and the more we see performances like Saturdays, I just think it's individuals that just need to play better, period. And so for me, at some point, we've seen these team, these guys play for most of the year. I think they'll either play better or we have to start asking ourselves if maybe they're getting a little bit worn down too. That's the only other thing. Yeah, which I think you when you say that, I mean that might relate to having some older players on the field as well. Maybe. Or it might be it might also relate to how the season has been managed or maybe the fact that they didn't have a home game and had to travel so much at the beginning of the year, although historically teams that have had to do a lot of home games at the end have made the playoffs. So who knows? I think there are some questions to be asked and some questions to be answered. Like Nick's second question, do you like what I did there? Did Porter leave at the right time? I mean, I, I think it was the right time for Caleb. Clearly, he felt like he had accomplished what he wanted to accomplish here, as he said. And um, for whatever reason, he didn't feel like he'd be bringing anything else coming back. If you have that mentality, I think you're probably leaving at the right time. In terms of the actual personnel, yeah, I mean, I think over the next few years, there's going to be a lot of turnover. Um, I, I Obviously, I think some of those veterans are still going to be on this roster, but there's going to have to be a big look towards the succession plan for, for a lot of them. And Maybe it was the right time for Porter. So Avresti is certainly inheriting a roster with some players that are getting older. But I don't know. I, I think as we've talked about, the Timbers are going to be in playoff. Most likely are going to be in playoffs this year based on the position they're in. It's it's not like they're having a terrible 2012 uh, era type season or anything like that. Wow, an even number playoff year. <laughs> what, what's that going to be like? I guess we'll have yeah. to do some reporting on that. Um, it's an interesting question because I think. We didn't foresee the decision that had to be made on Darlington. Uh, yeah. We knew that Darlington Nagby had had offers to go overseas before, but I, I still think the trade to Atlanta surprised us a little bit. We didn't see that the Fernando Adi thing would come to a head uh, the way that it has. I think that we also, uh, we, we knew Ridgewell was entering an interesting part of his career here that, you know, it might be approaching the end. This might be his last year. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't, but looking at from potentially Caleb Porter's point of view at that time, uncertain future for Darlington, uncertain future for Fernando Adi, uncertain future for Liam Ridgewell. Does this affect my decision at all? I don't think Nick's asking that, but in terms of did he get out at the right time, I mean, maybe. Those guys were so important to his core. The only other person that you would really add as being, two people you would add as being part of his core are the Diegos. So if you're looking like, oh, do I... Do I feel like I've taken this team as far as it can go? And do I really want to experience like a downside with this team? Huh. Wow, Nick, you're talking me into this a little bit. <laughs> Let's go to the next question. Heath asks, the Timbers clearly rely on Chara and Valeri as barometers. Is there anyone on the roster that has the potential to step up into that role with both players closer to the end of their careers than the start? Yeah, I am right now trying to look up how old Sebastian Blanco is because I think Sebastian Blanco, um, he's 30, which is Mm -hmm. still, I think, a few years younger than both the Diegos. Um, I think Sebastian Blanco has, you know, stepped into a leadership role this year. And like you were saying, I mean, I think he's in many, many games been more influential than Diego Valeri this year. So I I think at least for the next few years, Blanco is going to be just continue to grow into a leader on this team. I, I, I think he's the obvious one. I, I Obviously, he's already 30, and over time, that's going to change. And I, I think who sort of fills the Chara and Valeri role in the long term is, I think, likely someone who's not currently on the roster right now. Um, but when you're looking at the current roster, I think Blanco's the most obvious to look at as someone who's sort of moved into that role even more this year. It reminds you how special these two guys are, that both on the field in terms of their play – and then off the field in terms of 
quietly creating a culture, they've been so valuable. Because you can look at somebody like Zarek Valentin, who's having a great year, and he can be somebody that helps reinforce culture, but he's never going to be the center of play on the field. Or you can look at somebody like Blanco, who very much over the next couple years could emerge into like an emotional leader on the team. But even though he is definitely more of a leader right now, he's more of kind of a rah-rah leader. He's more of like a kind of guy that'll lighten the mood with a good joke and be the passion guy. Uh, but he's not the kind of barometer heartbeat guy yet. I think he can actually get there. But it just reminds you that how special these two guys are. And I don't want to say the organization was lucky to stumble onto them. But until you get a guy in, you actually don't know what they're going to be like. And the organization was lucky that these two guys were as good as they are when they came here. Yeah. Well, it's time for us to transition into Jamie's favorite part of the show. <laughs> uh, something... That is named after somebody that we have already mentioned on the show already. So in a week of Chris Reifer hot takes, setting RCTID Twitter on fire for a little bit, let's go to the Chris Reifer Memorial hot take interlude. Jamie, you're up. Yeah, I'm going to talk more about Twitter fights and, and Twitter things. So um, another nod to Chris and <laughs> Barrett's argument. Twitter fights? Um, Chris no, Reifer, we're thinking of you. I, I, I think that... I, you know, this isn't really so much on um, the Merritt Reifer fight as it is on Paul Riley's retweeting, which is what I want to talk about. But I, I think, uh, you know, I, I think overall they do fit to some degree. And just players, coaches, owners, uh, everyone involved in teams need to really take responsibility for what they are doing on social media. And I think that means, you know, setting a good example and not name calling is probably part of it. Um, but I think for me, what really bothered me on social media uh, in the last week uh, or so was Paul Riley retweeting um, a tweet sent out by someone, someone I believe a Courage fan, uh, just a random Twitter user, uh, around when the Courage game, semifinal game, was being moved to Portland and basically calling the media lazy and implying that they wanted to just spend the full week in Portland and that's lazy, why they were... Lazy, whiny NWSL yeah. media. <laughs> lazy, whiny NWSL media that just wants to spend the full week in Portland and not travel to North Carolina to cover the game. And Paul Riley retweeted this. And obviously it's not him tweeting it out himself, but a retweet is, you know, <laughs> amplifying a, a tweet that's out there. And then he came to Portland, obviously, and they had the press conference ahead of the championship game. And, and Paul Riley was asked about this. And Paul's a guy that I respect and I, I really enjoyed working with him when he was here. But But I was really disappointed to see that he just acted like that question was undeserved and just... Uh, refused to answer it and said that it had nothing to do with the football or the championship or anything going on. And he created that question. He put himself in a position where that became a question and something that I think the media who is covering his team deserves an answer for. Um, and, and so I was really disappointed to see that sort of reaction. I think that someone in his position um, needs to take responsibility for the things they do on Twitter. And if that means retweeting something calling the the people that cover your league whiny uh and lazy <laughs> they have to have some sort of response for it uh and, and so that's i guess my just psa sort of to to people that are around teams social media matters and, and what what they what someone says on there matters and to just ignore a question like that and act like it's not relevant when you've created um its relevance by making deciding to retweet something like that um I, I think it's just a really bad look for paul riley and the courage organization yeah i kind of agree with you you know people who follow both of us online know that you and i approach social media very differently but if somebody came to me asking me a question as to like one of my smart ass 
comments on social or why did I say this thing that was obviously wrong when I intended it to be sarcastic or why did I let a a Thorns player swat a layup at Nike last week? I'm not going to tell them I'm not going to talk about that. I'm going to say why I did it or I'm going to say, hey, this is how I approach social media. And Paul could just say, you know, I was retweeting things that reflect how I felt at the time and just that could be it. So I don't understand why he didn't uh, respond to the question, at least. He could have made it a very short response, but him acting like it was an irrelevant topic really felt like a dissonant response, given the fact that he was at a press conference facing the group that he had called lazy and whiny, implicitly acknowledged as lazy and whiny through this other person's words. At the same time, I do want to, again, I don't know why I even bring this up on this podcast, because I congratulated them on Saturday, but I wanted to congratulate... Paul Riley and Scott Vallow and Jessica McDonald and McCall Zerboni, who couldn't be here on Saturday, uh, former people connected with this organization on winning their first title in North Carolina. Um, would have been nice if Paul Riley answered all the questions leading up to it, though. Yeah. So my hot take um, is NWSL related also, uh, and not something that I entirely believe, so I'm feeling a little bit hot takey about this, but <laughs> you know, in this time of uncertainty with N- the NWSL, where last year... We lost a couple teams, added one. There's some questions about teams going into next year. I personally believe that the solution to this uncertainty is for the NWSL to massively expand. (laughs) I'm talking about taking this nine-team league and blowing it up to like 16 teams, finding USL ownership groups that control their facilities, getting... Merritt Paulson and Deloitte Hansen to push some of these MLS groups over the line and get take advantage of this opportunity where salaries are so limited right now. We're going into a World Cup year. We have so many teams that control facilities that need their calendar to fill out. Hey, why don't you have a women's soccer team at the point of our soccer universe where women's soccer is going to be most relevant? The rationale behind this is that the best thing that a new struggling league can have is better owners. The one thing that the team that league should be doing, regardless of whether Team X, Team B is having ownership problems, is bringing more strong ownership groups into the league. So when those teams struggle and have to be replaced, as Boston and Kansas City did last year, you have strong owners in the league that are building your numbers. Now, expanding from 9 to 16 sounds like a lot, and it is. But one, playing in the U.S. is a huge draw for the four, maybe five internationals per team that would come over. And secondly, look, it's not the highest quality soccer in the world, but if there's one thing that this country with its college setup can do, it can crank out soccer players. So for a couple of years, you're going to have some players in there that, like at the beginning of the NWSL, might only last one or two years because really they're just athletes out there who are getting a couple years on the end of their college careers. But between those players, the players that would come back from overseas, the players that wouldn't have to retire because the rosters aren't such a crunch, I don't think there would be that big of a problem. At least the problems wouldn't outset, offset the value of having a 16-team league with a bunch of ownership groups that can provide a firmer foundation for the NWSL. Yeah, I don't. I don't want to see it go to sixteen immediately. But I, I think the. I, think, I felt like I was like in high school yeah, debate there, where no. I was just. Like, it was a good. It was a good. I got an overall. It was a good argument though, because I I think the 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 underlying point is let's get more good ownership in this league and let's not you know prevent them from coming in. And I I think that if there are ownership groups out there that are associated with USL teams, are associated with MLS teams, and want to come into the NWSL, the NWSL should be doing everything to make sure those ownership groups can come in. Now, I don't think that always is going to mean expanding, because you look at, um, 
you you look at you know sky blue <laughs> there she needs to be it. an issue or that that needs to be sorted out and i don't know if it's going to happen because obviously the current ownership has to make decisions around this but i would like to see sky blue in my perfect world world absorbed by an ownership group <laughs> that's maybe associated with an mls team and might may or may not be in that market maybe somewhere else maybe is owned by barcelona i don't know yeah <laughs> you know but sort of dealing with these problem um, clubs, I think, is number one by bringing in union ownerships and, and maybe absorbing some of those clubs. But if there, if there are ownership groups out there uh, that are, have the strength behind them that, you know, Real Salt Lake clearly did. I mean, you look at how well uh, the Utah Royals did this oh year. Oh, my gosh. We have to talk about that through the offseason. Yeah, I've been talking we, to more Royals players. They love it there. I think there's some kind of off the field rivalry about to start between. Yeah, and I mean they continue. they didn't hit the thirteen thousand Portland in the regular in their first season, but they are number two with almost ten thousand. So I think that's really you know I think that was a really positive. And they and let's not forget they got off to a I mean they had to put that team together so quickly um, to have that sort of season. I, I think was really promising for the league. You can bring in, if you can bring in more ownership groups like that. Yeah. The NWSL, if it does mean expanding a little bit more quickly than they want to, yeah, uh, they should look into that because if they can bring in ownership groups like they have here and they have in Salt Lake, that's only going to make the league better. Yeah, I, I obviously agree with you. It was my hot take. So maybe it wasn't that hot, but I just think people look at expansion a little bit backwards. Well, 16 is a bit hot. Okay, yeah. Well, it, <laughs> hey, I just want to honor Chris's memory, okay? Let's go hot with these. But I think people generally with the NWSL look at expansion a little bit backwards and say, well, we can't expand until we firm up these teams, these weak teams. It's like, no, we should expand because we can't firm up these six teams. Let's get better owners into this thing. Yeah. Okay. So speaking of the NWSL, this is where we go into the more somber section of the show. Although it doesn't have to be somber because there is a lot of good stuff that not only came out of this weekend, but good reason to reflect back on this year yeah. in Portland Thorn soccer. Although we need to start with Saturday's result. North Carolina, unsurprisingly, defeats the Thorns 3 to nothing. Not quite a replay of their May match, which North Carolina won 4-1, to one, but the feeling leaving the field was very much similar that the Thorns had run into a very special team, one that completed their season with only one loss in 26 games and claimed the Shield, I guess, Shield Championship spatula double? Is that yeah, what we're calling it? Yeah, the first team to, I don't know what the double's called, but the first team to do that. I don't even know what the Shield is called. Everybody calls it the spatula because, I mean, the, the trophy that you get for winning the thing. Everybody calls it the spatula, so I guess it's the Shield spatula double. <laughs> but yeah, they, they broke the curse of teams that had finished first in the regular season. No team had ever finished first in the regular season and won the title. North Carolina did it. So hats off to them. A very impressive show. Uh, where should we start with this one, Jamie? It was your first soccer game since being back in Portland after your uh, East Coast excursion. What do you remember most from this? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think it was, I think there's a lot of places to start. I, I think let's start with sort of the on-field um, you know, performance from the Thorns in North Carolina, and then we can slowly get into you know some of the more positive aspects of the game and, and uh, looking ahead towards the offseason and the future. Um, Notorious RBF uh, asks, what was Parsons' plan on Saturday and why was it defeated? So I I think that's a place to start in terms of the on-field aspects. Yeah, I don't know. I think the plan was probably pretty similar to what we've seen over the last month, month and a half of the season. The Thorns have very specific strengths in attack that they want to leverage. I think we did see early on Tobin Heath trying to make the most of her advantage on Merritt Matthias. But... 
sometimes North Carolina plays so well, it's really hard to tell what the other team's trying to do because it immediately becomes a game where the other team is so consumed with keeping up with them, denying them space, trying to be as prepared as possible for when North Carolina is going to try to jump into those spaces that it's really hard to get your own thing going. And I, it wasn't until about the 20-minute mark where we really saw periods where North Carolina was having to hold the ball deep and you could see Portland's shape setting up and they can actually press a little bit. And when they did that, it really wasn't that much of a surprise. It looked like Portland Thorn soccer. And up until that second goal was scored, you were kind of like, maybe there is a way here where if they can just get to halftime, they can adjust a little bit. But ultimately, yeah, I think it was just the plan wasn't that different than usual. It just isn't a plan that matches up very well with North Carolina. Yeah. North Carolina is better than North Carolina was better than the Thorns this year. I think there's just no way around that. They were just, they were just better than every single team in the NWSL. And that included the thorns, even on the thorns on the run that they were in. And that, I think that's a question for Portland going into the off season about why North Carolina was better and how Portland can get there. But I don't think it was necessarily because of, you know, some massive mistake the Thorns were making that game. I I think they were just outplayed by a better team. Now, Jeffrey's question, I think, is really interesting. And it's something that I don't think we've been explicit enough about. And we're going to have to be because it's so stark. Paul Riley's record was less than great as a coach in Portland. Now he seems like a genius. What gives? Well, it goes beyond that, too. He seemed like a genius before he came to Portland, too. So in your opinion, what gives? So I actually have a strong opinion about this that I yeah. Paul may or may not agree with. Okay. Um, probably doesn't agree with, actually. But I, I've thought a lot about this, actually. Um, I think that Paul Riley came to Portland and was a little bit like a kid in a candy shop realizing for the first time in his coaching career that he could basically sign any player he wanted to in the entire world. And I think he focused too much on signing players in the attack without sort of building a well-rounded team. I think he just was so excited to be in Portland and brought in all these players he had always wanted to coach. And suddenly it was not a well-rounded team. They were heavy on attackers and they didn't have the chemistry you need to have success. And I feel like, you know, after that experience going to North Carolina and being in a situation that maybe he couldn't sign every single player and he went back to the basics and just tried to get his underdog, young underdog team to come together he was very successful as he was before. But but I think that's um, based on just my own feelings and not talking to Paul about this. I think that's what went wrong with him here in Portland. One thing I think we don't talk about enough in soccer, and it's something we really should talk about in this market because the hirings that Gavin Wilkinson and Merritt Paulson have made with both their men's and women's, and I think to a certain extent why Cameron Knowles was uh, brought up to as the head coach of the T2 team, have been very much culturally influenced when Paul was here the culture was not good he inherited a bad culture it was a culture that was star driven it was not a culture that was derived around a team around a team ethos the hierarchy of personalities of leaders hadn't fully been established they really in my opinion I don't want to say lucked into the first uh, the title the first year because those players did play and win that title fair and square but it did not reflect, in my opinion, the quality of the team. Over the next two years, that culture led to increasingly poor results. And Paul was a bad fit for that. You alluded to it in your answer. He does better with players that he needs to motivate, that he needs to build up, that he needs to convince can reach a level that they haven't been at before. Well, the players that he came in here and inherited and then signed, he didn't need to do that. He needed to convince them that he had a plan to make all their talents work. And it didn't happen. When you have players like 
Christine Sinclair and Tobin Heath and the other players that he had, and you say, just go out there and play really hard and run your butts off like North Carolina does, sometimes players will look at him and go, but do you have a plan? But when you have Lynn Williams and Jessica McDonald and Crystal Dunn and all these other players, sometimes it's like, yeah, we're just going to go out there and beat them. It's just a really, really bad fit. Um, and I don't want to make it seem like Paul only says go out there and run your butts off. Like He has built up this team over years to be a team that is superior at what they do. But it was a terrible fit in Portland, in my opinion. Yeah, and obviously the Alex Morgan trade proved to be the the best trade that the Portland Thorns have ever ever made. I mean, and then that's what Mark came into. I mean, it's a completely different roster when Alex Morgan is not sort of the star um, of the team anymore. Um, yeah. And that's, you know, I, I think sometimes she had a bad rep in Portland, and I think she's a very good player, but she was injured a lot of the times here. And, and not to say anything bad about Alex Morgan, but what the Thorns ended up getting in return and how that not only helped the on-field play, but also the cultural environment with the specific players that came in, obviously, I think, set Mark up immediately in a a pretty good situation. Yeah, absolutely. I think there was always a dynamic at the beginning with this team where was it going to be a culture defined by Alex Morgan? Whether she wanted to be or not, her stardom had that gravity, or Christine Sinclair. And I think we've seen what has happened when... It is defined by Christine Sinclair, but I also think it was a bad place for Alex Morgan because in this town, you cannot have a Christine Sinclair captain team and not have the culture defined by her. And so once they once they streamlined that and simplified it, I think the team has had like a clear vision going forward. But Paul was the one person who had to be on the back end of that and both in addition to being a bad fit here, had to deal with the fact that that was going to be chaos until the organization fixed it. So on a little bit more positive note from um, the from the Thorn side from the championship game, it's the most well attended uh, championship in, in women's sub uh, club soccer history in the U.S. I mean, it, it you know doesn't even come close to what the previous record, which I think was set here when the Thorns hosted in 2015 yeah. and didn't even play in the game, or not the Thorns hosted the Providence Park hosted, right, right. and the Thorns weren't even in that game. I think they drew thirteen thousand to that. Um, complete sellout. I mean, what does it mean to the league? Um, and maybe, you know, maybe it doesn't mean all that much league, but what did, what did you, what was kind of your reaction? How do you feel about seeing that? In some ways, the, the biggest thing from that game, and I don't want to, I don't want to just cast aside what North Carolina accomplished, but in some ways, the biggest thing that the league accomplished from that game was getting an environment that it can show the rest of the world that it's capable of creating. So, by the time that TIFO went up in the North End, I think the NWSL had already scored a huge win. And for years, we were going to see those shots, that hear that sound, see, even though the game wasn't close, see all those athletes on the field at the same time, see all those great players on the field at the same time, and be able to say, that's what NWSL soccer is. And we'll see it any t- over the next five years, anytime a BBC or a Canal Plus or whatever comes over here and tries to do a story on what women's soccer is in the United States, they will have B-roll from this amazing occasion. I honestly don't know if that will move the needle or not. What do you think? Because I think those stories will get done. I just don't know if they all matter. Yeah, I don't know how much it changes where the league is at, but I think it's certainly when you're putting on a national TV audience on Lifetime, um, that's what they want to showcase. And you look back to these previous years. I, I remember in 2013 showing up here and turning on the game in Kansas City um, when, when the Thorns were in the semifinals. And it, it just didn't look like a professional game was happening. It, it may, looked like maybe a high school or 
maybe college game was happening. And so to see what, I think it's more of just like you said, the B-roll, the images to really showcase on in front of the audience that watched on Lifetime what women's soccer can be about and, and something you can be excited about because I, I think it's tough to get so excited when you're looking at a game, even if it's on TV, and it's being broadcast like it looks like a high school game. You, you kind of just immediately want to tune away from that. Um, but to see the kind of support that was here, I, I think that in terms of just viewership and the images it is important for the league, even if it doesn't necessarily change any of the realities uh, at the moment. For me, part of that reality, though, was in the moments after the game where the Riveters still packed the North End and made it a point to not leave until their players were off the field and not stop cheering until their friends, their uh, players were off the field. That was incredibly powerful to me. Going over to the Riveters party afterward at, at Kells and seeing that they had shifted into a, a mode where they were enjoying each other, where they were kind of taking this as the culmination of six years' worth of work. And you really realize... and. You, when you look at the TIFO and you see all the people pulling that TIFO up and realizing what they were doing six years ago to try to create what happened on Saturday, the people who helped throw that party afterwards and realizing what they've done to create this culture. In 2013, this place wasn't capable of selling out that game. In 2018, there was no doubt that game was going to be sold out. And those people created that. So although their team lost... That was an amazing, amazing day to celebrate what the core group of Thorns fandom has brought to not only those players. I mean, I wouldn't have this job if there wasn't a second professional team that garnered that kind of attention in this city. So I'm incredibly thankful for them, and I'm incredibly thankful I was even at that game on Saturday because it was, it was a spectacle. Yeah. I think, um, you know, outside of the game, I, I think a lot of the questions we got, and we can bring sort of the listener questions in and our own discussion um, for the rest of this segment, um, you know, it's kind of about the Thorn season, um, how we kind of evaluate this season, and then looking ahead to the off season um, and what um, are going to be the priorities. Because clearly, as we said, you know, the Thorns were just not on the level of North Carolina mm-hmm. this year. So I, I guess let's start with the season and, and just kind of, your thoughts coming out of um, 2018. And, and I mean, I think you still can call it a success, but um, how do you feel at the end of the Thorn season? I feel pretty positive because it was only after that Saturday game that you do realize that a lot of the changes North Carolina made were, as far as Crystal Dunn and bringing Merritt Matthias, were very much, we need to build on what we have now. And a lot of the changes that the Thorns had to make in the, after the departures of players like Nadia Nadim and Dagny Brignard-Starter and Ashley Sykes and a number of other players. Did you not just say Amandine Henri? Amandine Henri, thank you. Oh, my God. <laughs> I was going through my head going, like, there is somebody I'm not mentioning here. But there were a couple of other players who, like, you know, Kath Reynolds and Haley Rousseau weren't on the field, even though they started. I'm not mentioning Allie Long uh, here. She departed, but she really wasn't a factor at the end of last year either. Um, the players that emerged into roles or were brought in were all young players. Except for Anna Cernogorsevic, there really wasn't a veteran brought in. I mean, Ange Salem was, but the key players that were brought in, Ellie Carpenter, Caitlin Ford, Midge Purse, these are all players that are being brought in to be part of a, a group that can, can inherit the legacy of the Sinclairs and the Heaths. And I think to a certain extent on Saturday, that might have been part of the divide, that some of those players that we're talking about, they didn't play bad. But North Carolina was elite. And is Ellie Carpenter ready to perform at an elite level in that setting yet? I think Saturday's performance says she's not. Uh, is Celeste Bure? Well, I thought Celeste played good on Saturday. Did she 
play as well as like a Dabinia did? No. And I think that just shows you how high the bar is for that North Carolina setting. But I think it also shows you that sometimes you got to take a step back to take steps forward. And everybody that is playing for the Thorns right now is capable of reaching that level. They're just not at that level. Yeah, I, I think that you look at this team, they're 5-5-5 five, five, and five after the first 15 games. You don't even know if they're going to make playoffs. To, to be able to turn it on and obviously finally getting a little bit healthy from the injuries, you know, Rosso and Reynolds aside, um, clearly helped. But to go, you know, 7-1-1 and one and one to close out the season, win the semifinal, host a semifinal and a championship, which just looked completely out of the question in midway through the year, um, further than midway through the year. I, they have to be really proud of what they accomplished this year. And like you said, the young players, um, you know, Carpenter, Purse, uh, Ford, I, I think, as Parsons kept reminding us, I think, towards the end of the season, you know, Ford was still just coming off the injury. And yeah. while I think we saw, I, it's hard to really evaluate um, her based on that. It'll be interesting to see how she does with a full preseason with the team, and she's still young. Um, I think it would be unfair to evaluate her too much on the performance this year. It wasn't bad, but... She was actually really good yeah. for a player that didn't score a goal. Yeah. But she's um, really good. But it, but it was a good example. Like, you can say, oh, Kaylin Ford's played in World Cups before. What, what are you talking about? Look, the atmosphere that we saw on on Saturday... I'm sorry, you don't see that in World Cups. I was talking to somebody about it. And it's like, you go to a World Cup, the crowd is corporate. It's di- it's divided and it's corporate. You come here and it is intense the whole time. Not only that, look, North Carolina is faster, stronger, more athletic than any team you're going to see in the international level. I mean, it's not it's not strange to say that like that was, even for somebody with Caitlin Ford's experience, something that they, she needs to put in her head and go, when, when that happens next time, I need to respond and I'm lifting my hand way in the air, this level, because I was expecting it to be, lowering my hand a little bit, this level. So that's just part of, yep. that's just part of learning. But I also, I would say that it also gives us a segue into the next question here. There are clearly places where the Thorns at least have to consider making changes, upgrading personnel in order to get to North Carolina's level. Yeah, and I think we got a few questions on that too from Donna, Timothy, a few other people sort of asked that exact same question that I already also asked in our mental notes. Um, Ah. Yeah, but yeah, I I think there are. Um, I I think they never, you know, they never replaced Amandine Henri. And I I think Andresina was okay, Um, but clearly, I mean, we saw towards the end of the season she wasn't starting, she wasn't... Yeah, it was a bad fit with Lindsay. I mean, I I thought she played well, but they needed somebody like Celeste in there. So I don't necessarily see her coming back, um, (gasps) given the... I'm kidding kidding with that cast, people. (laughs) Given the sort of how her role evolved to being very minimal at the end. Um, She's a good player, I I think. Um, I don't know what the contract status is, but if they can use her in a trade, I, I think they could potentially get some good um, return for that. I, but I think that is a position, even with how well I, I think Celeste sort of stepped into that role, I, I think that is still a position. I, I mean, Celeste is not Amandine Henri, and, and so that I think yeah. is a position that they could still look yeah. maybe internationally and see what who they can bring in. Bring in. I think it's tough in a World Cup year because I think a lot of international players want to be in their home countries, so maybe, maybe that's not going to happen next year, at least mm-hmm. from an international player. Maybe it's going to have to be within the league. But I, I think that's a position they need to look at. Uh, I mean, f- they need to decide sort of a little bit, I, I think, of what their forward situation is going to be. They, obviously, the goals came you know, from Lindsay in the midfield, from Christine Sinclair in the midfield, and then Tobin Heath when she finally was at her best towards the end of the year. Is Ford going to be able to be come in next year? And 
uh, take another step now that she has a free preseason. I think she's definitely going to come back, and that's what they hope. But is Cernogosevic the player you want to keep also in, in the forward situation, or do you want to maybe move her and bring in someone else? I, I think that's going to be another question for them. I, I think defensively overall this team is pre- in pretty good shape. Um, but I am – it will be interesting to see just in terms of the World Cup, and we got some questions about that as well, if they make some moves based on that, assuming that they're going to probably lose on it during that time. Um, obviously, they'll lose uh, Tobin, Lindsay, quite a lot of people. They're going to yeah. lose their entire team. Heath, Do we yeah. have to even go Australians? Heath, Heath Sinclair, Ford, Carpenter, Rosso, yeah. um, Haran, uh, Sonnet, French probably now too. Yeah, well, so that was going to be the last point. I mean, we probably need to talk a little bit more about the World Cup and how that impacts next year. We got those questions as well. But and, Oh, and maybe Sonor Gorchevich yeah, too, depending which, on how Switzerland Which qualifies. is why I think I wouldn't be surprised to see Sonor Gorchevich be one of those players that doesn't come back. But with French, I, I think it raises some questions whether they want to upgrade their goalkeeping behind French um, to, or whether they feel like Eckerstrom is going to be good enough to come in for an extended yeah, period I think of time. it's more, for me, if... If Adriana French was going to stay here the whole year, you would want to give Britt Eckerstrom an opportunity to go out and find a starting job somewhere because I do think there are two or three teams this year that she could have helped. They have young goalkeepers, so places like Houston and Sky Blue, you'll want to stick with them, but maybe you would want to bring in somebody like a Britt Eckerstrom to be there just in case they don't take the next steps forward. Uh, with Adriana French potentially gone, maybe you keep Britt Eckerstrom here and have Bella Geis come back and be the backup. So, yeah, it, it is interesting. That has changed things a little bit. I think, you know, you're looking at this team. We agree on Sal, Lest, um, Bure. Let me use people's full names here. Jesus. I mean, I've written a lot this year about Celeste Bure. I think she's taken steps forward. I think she's a very good player. When we get to the level that we saw on Saturday, you have to ask about everybody. And, yeah, maybe Celeste has to come in and fight for her job next year against somebody that you think could be better. Megan Klingenberg, too. After the game, I made sure to tell Megan Klingenberg, I think you had a very good year and a lot of people weren't talking about it. She didn't. There were a couple of games that weren't great, but I thought she, she worked her butt off this year. Well, what, where's Megan Klingenberg going to be next year? Not as far as geography. You wrote something about that today. She's either going to be in Portland or nowhere. Uh, but in terms of her career, and do you need to upgrade there? Chicago, I think, has always had very good luck, not luck, very good performances against North Carolina because they have such athletic fullbacks in Casey Short and Aaron Gilliland, and they force that that box that North Carolina plays in the midfield to flatten out and give those fullbacks that North Carolina has help against those two. I'm not sure that either Kling or Ellie did that this year. I think Ellie projects to somebody that would do that. But what does Kling project to be? I do want to, on Kling, I just want to point out, though, because of the World Cup year, I think given that she, assuming she stays in the situation she was with the national team, which is that she's not going to be part of the World Cup year, I think it makes a lot of sense for them to bring Kling back, keep her in the starting lineup as that sort of veteran presence that sort of kind of leads the team, especially with those absences. I also find the World Cup year to be so weird to talk about in this market. Because after 2015 and the team not making the playoffs, Gavin Wilkinson got out in front of it and said, we didn't, basically, we didn't ha- manage the World Cup year correctly. We had too many people that were going to the World Cup. We're not going to do that for the Olympics next year, even though they kind of still had a lot of players uh, that went to the Olympics. But then you look at the other teams that had success in the playoffs that year, they had just as many people leave for the World Cup. It's not so much whether you have a lot of players that are going to the World Cup, it's how you manage it and whether you have the culture in place afterwards to sustain it. And again, it goes back to culture. 
The 2015 culture, not good. The 2019 culture is going to be very good. And I think that, you know, keeping clean is a big part of that culture. Clean community around would be good anyway. But I think a lot of these absences that the team are going to have, once you sketch out an 11, and once you realize that that point of the season is going to be all about survival, I don't think we should be as paranoid about the World Cup as maybe the comments in the wake of 2015 suggested we should be. Well, I think we did get a lot of questions about that from Don and Katie and others just about whether we think, um, I mean, even how many weeks do we expect these players to be gone and whether we think that that's going to impact maybe the thorns in it and how they approach their roster. I feel weird speculating about it. Do you want to answer that one? Yeah, it's hard. I, I mean, we looked at 2015. They missed a significant amount of games, um, and I think they'll miss a significant amount of games next year. Um, I don't know the exact number, but I, I think one of the things is even looking at the 2015 um, when they came back, none, those players weren't integrated immediately afterwards. In, in the U.S. players, you expect the goal will be to, to reach the final, and so it's not only just – when they leave for the World Cup, it's probably a few weeks afterwards at least. It's going to be a significant amount of the season. I, I think they have to make some decisions on that without blowing up the team. You know, I, I don't think they should say, well, we're going to, you know, you know, maybe we should bring Tobin or Lindsay or, or some crazy ideas like that back because those players are going to be at the World Cup. That's the core of their team are players that are going to be at the World Cup. But when it comes to a player like Serena Gorsevich, if she's potentially going to the World Cup, well, maybe let's find, let's, I mean, I, I, I definitely see someone. why you keep bringing up Anna. Sorry to interrupt. I, I'm actually really sorry to interrupt. I see why you keep bringing up Anna as a good example of like this tension. But Anna is so well-liked here that I would be shocked if they were like, we can't bring you back because of the World Cup. I think it was more, my, my, my reasoning was more than that. But I mean, you're right. Yeah, yeah, she yeah. is she is well-liked here. So maybe not. Maybe she's not the player that goes. I mean, like I said, Andresinha, um, I don't expect her going back in the World Cup, I think, adds to that. I mean, anyways. So. Yeah, and especially because Brazil, the last couple of World Cups, have called in their players to a residency camp so early, too. Yeah. And the and the fit issues, too, as far as, like, this year, I'm not sure the Thorns figured out how to play with Andresinha. Yeah, so... so. I think it's sort of the players that are on the cusp already yeah. um, that are also going to the World Cup. That's kind of the maybe going to be a deciding factor. Well, they weren't. We weren't sure what to do with these players, anyways. If they were going to come back and they're going to be at the World Cup, let's find a different option. Let's bring in someone that's going to be here all year. Now I feel really bad for interrupting, but maybe I just maybe Anastasia wasn't the best example, but I think Andresinha is a really good example of that. Like even even for people on the outside looking at Anastasia's position, you would think so. It's just there's some there's some chemistry issues there that make it a unique thing. But as far as the other things, I mean, I guess I can kind of say this. I haven't heard this from anybody in the organization, but I heard it from a lot of people outside the organization that U.S. they should anticipate that U.S. soccer will call in people in early May. So that's basically one month of preparation ahead of at least a month of being in France, and then probably more, maybe another week in France after that, and a one or two weeks of coming back in period after that. So that could change, but from what I'm hearing, the plans are to have that full camp again. So... Yeah, we have to significantly plan. Um, I say I'm not saying we as a club. I'm saying we as a like culture, an NWSL culture. We have to significantly plan for supporting a league that doesn't have its top line stars for six, eight games next year, and that's if they adjust the schedule to account for it. And Donna and Katie ask, how will that impact NWSL attendance? Yeah, it will. I mean, it will. I mean, I would like to think that we can talk about things enough that motivate a lot of people to come out and see these players regardless. But historically, 
people are going to care about the World Cup a lot more than they care about the NWSL. Yeah, I, th- I think you look at 2015 and they did get a little bit of a World Cup bump afterwards. So throughout the season, it might even it out a little bit. But yeah, I, I expect to see, especially maybe not in Portland. I remember there was a sellout in 2015 while the World Cup players were away, if I remember correctly, or close to at a really well-attended game versus Seattle. But yeah, especially in other markets, I think it's going to be tough during that time. Let's go to the last question here. It's from DeHefley. What does the increase in roster size bring to the league? Could we see an increase in season length? So for people that don't know about this, on Friday during her media availability after Lindsay Horan's press conference, after Mark Parsons and Paul Riley's press conferences, Amanda Duffney, the, Amanda Duffy, the t- uh, league's managing director, announced that rosters will be expanded for next year. A firm number hasn't been set yet. Numbers like 23 and 24 have been thrown around. Uh, I think that brings a lot more jobs to the league. That's my obvious answer, but... It's one that I want to remind people, you multiply four by nine, that's 36 more professional players that have jobs next year. That's huge for me. Well, but I don't think it really is because they basically, the league basically was at 24 this year, right? Um, Oh, that's a good point. The roster size basically. So yeah, I don't think, what I think the roster size is going to do, so the... I feel like I should explain this as opposed to just assume everyone understands. The players from the Boston Breakers were allowed on rosters this year after Boston folded without actually counting against the roster cap. So that essentially allowed teams to take up to 24 players, I believe, this year. Was it Um, I don't think any team... Yeah, it did. I think there were a couple of fourth-round picks in that draft, but I think most teams had 21 yeah, or 22. I, so you didn't, you didn't have to, but it allowed teams to put up to 24. It allowed teams to go over the uh, roster cap of 20. I, I wouldn't be surprised to see it go up to 24 next year. I think the other reason why it has to happen next year... I, partially, I think it's to accommodate these players that are already on rosters, like Mitch Purse, who, who obviously I, I think the Thorns would want to bring her back regardless, but is it in that position where she technically didn't count against the roster cap this year um, or the salary cap? It's to accommodate those, but it's also because when you look back at 2015, the the league relied heavily on amateur players while the, play, were, yes. while the international players were away at the World Cup. And they've since moved away from the amateur players. I think they've, I think they've gotten rid of it entirely. I'm not sure if it's in the rulebook at all anymore. I don't think it is. Um, but they need to accommodate for that. And they need the roster size to be bigger because if you're not going to have amateur players coming in, they need to have people on the roster that can fill those roles. Yeah, absolutely. That's what it's all about. And that doesn't necessarily mean the roster size is going to be the same next year. It definitely, this is a World Cup allowance and hopefully it's a permanent thing, but I wouldn't go around thinking that this means that the rosters are permanently going to be at that size. As for the other question there, could we see an increase in season length? In terms of actual games, no. In terms of calendar footprint, I, I find that unlikely too. I mean, there's a lot of motivation in this league to continue giving these players uh, the op- continue giving these players the opportunity to go play in Australia as a way to augment the fact that their salaries are somewhat reduced here in the United States. I mean, they're getting better, but when you're talking about a player that might be making twenty, twenty four thousand, which is a good wage for a player in this league compared to some, they need to go down there and get those four months of work in Australia to round out a full salary. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, extending it past six months. I mean, right now when you think of the salaries, it sort of is a six-month salary um, if you want to look at it that way. If you start extending the season past six months, suddenly these wages don't go nearly as far. Okay, Jamie, Thorne's predictions. Uh, oh, we don't have to do yeah, that anymore. No, not any Thorne's predictions for a while. Okay, so let's go ahead and go to the Timbers. <laughs> I wrote Thorne's predictions on the mental notes. That's why you said that. Yeah. 
Yeah, I'm a jerk to bring it up like that. But going to the prediction time, the fantasy time of this show, we've got a game on Saturday at Providence Park. FC Dallas making their visit to Portland this year. The team's tied in Frisco earlier. Jamie, tell me they're not going to try on Saturday. Yeah, I think it's going to be another tie. (laughs) Welcome back, Jamie Goldberg. Jeez. I'm not feeling super optimistic after the uh, Minnesota. I mean, obviously against Columbus here, but given that I think Dallas is going to be at full strength and is, I think, doing pretty well at the moment, I'm not confident in how the Timbers are playing right now. So I'm going to say at one point at home, which is not going to be what they want, one-to-one draw. Yeah, you can both be... And you can be confident in how the Timbers will play too, and still a one-to-one draw against Dallas is not... Uh, the most unexpected or inexplicable thing in the world. My side bet is something that's going to antagonize people because this has been an issue not only this year, but it's been a sensitive thing. Throughout his time in Portland, I'm predicting a Diego Chara yellow card just to be a troll. (laughs) I feel like that just is like very low. I mean, I don't feel like you can get all that many points for that one. That seems like it happens pretty often. Yeah, I wouldn't be. (laughs) I mean, like, I think we've gotten to the point where like the side bets we know when they hit, they get desert points. It's definitely not an 80-point side yeah, bet there. No. I, think, I feel like it's like a 32 or something <laughs> like that. A fantasy update, Jamie. Yeah. I know my team is out of contention in the fantasy clausura, so I'll stop cheering for them. Who are in the top three right now? Yeah. Uh, new team, it's number three, and I really like this team, and I'm rooting heavily for them. Oh, boy. Uh, <laughs> is, it, is it named after your dog? No, it's not named after my dog, but I would root heavily for that team as well. Um, apparently, the third place team is Jamie B. Goldberg FC with 870 points. So oh, my God. I, I'm really rooting for uh, Jamie B. Goldberg FC to make it up the standings. They're pretty close. I mean, these are all pretty close. So I, I have some faith in That's, my new favorite team. That is Beer City FC's arch rival. <laughs> um, in second place, we have Armin Terrors. Uh, I guess not. Yeah. Okay. I read probably read that a little bit poorly, but Armin Terrors, uh, yeah. 885 points. That's a pretty good name. And then Blood Bath and Beyond is still in first with 891 points. Leading with your favorite word in the world. <laughs> you have to say that every podcast now. Yeah, it's getting weird. Um, anyways, that's all for today. I hope we both didn't sound too much like we had colds through the last hour or so. Uh, hope we were people could listen to us but anyways that's all um we're soccer made in portland you can find us every week on stumptown footy timbers.com and oregon live or you can subscribe on itunes or stitcher and until next week take care